ready. There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went? She came back alone. I know there's a story. She's as real as you are. That's what you say and you believe it, but there doesn't appear to be anybody else to see. I saw that. That isn't Miss Troy. Stop the train. Listen, everybody, there's a woman on this train, Miss Troy. Some of you must have seen her. They're hiding her somewhere. Do you hear? Why don't you do something before it's too late? Please, please. I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm not. I'm not. For heaven's sake, stop this train. theater and the usher nods me in. They know me here. I descend down the staircase behind the movie screen that only select people know about. The door at the bottom opens and I walk in. The sound of movie spoilers fill the air. The barkeep has my drink ready and motions me to the back. The rest of the crew are here already. This is my type of place and these are my type of people. Join me as we discuss the inner secrets of cinema. Have a seat in the spoiler room. And we are live here in the spoiler room. It's our second spoiler room of 2023. So glad folks can join us. Thank you for coming down the stairs, pulling up a chair and popping your favorite drink with us as we talk train movies this month uh, <laughs> uh it's e-ticket month here and last week uh, we kicked it off with a look at murder on the orient express 1974 not kenneth Branagh's mustache one with parkour perot um <laughs> and today uh, i decided to set the way back machine to 1938 and look at a film called The Lady Vanishes. And with me tonight is our wonderful crew member, right-hand man, and as I always say, the man who just keeps coming back for more. It's none other than Mr. Ian Simmons. Hello, Ian. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm excited to talk about a movie that I finished watching this morning, or no, this evening, and I ordered the Criterion Blu-ray of it, partially because wow. it was half off, but well, partially because yeah. I am in love with this movie. <laughs> Well, that's great to hear because guess what? You get to do the synopsis of this movie. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to toss it back to you, Mark. Or, or just let's just bring on a guest, a third it, third guest, crazy. just to do the synopsis, and then they can be dismissed. <laughs> they can leave. They're just like, oh, thanks for coming. Appreciate that. Uh, I don't quite know how to synopsize this movie. Um, I'll give the broad strokes. There is a... I'm going to get these details wrong right off the bat because I had to watch this thing in roughly four parts throughout my day. Mm. Um, but 
there is a train that is traveling somewhere like across Europe to a destination. There's a young woman uh, on the train and her name is Iris Matilda Henderson. She's on the way to meet her fiance. She's led a life of, I guess, adventure and fun, being a swinging single, and it's time to settle down and marry a man she doesn't love. Uh, right before she gets in the train, she is uh, a brick or something falls on her head from a from a mm -hmm. third story window, and she gets concussed. And on the train, she passes out. And uh, when she wakes up, the uh, elderly lady, um, this is Madame Froy, uh, who she met at the train station or the the hotel the night before. Mm -hmm. Uh, is taking care of her and they're hanging out they're swapping stories and all that business uh, Iris falls asleep or passes out again and when she wakes up uh, no one on the train seems to know anything about Adam Freud because the lady has vanished as the title suggests and uh, it becomes this not exactly a who done it but a where is she um, Iris is convinced that uh, Madame Froy is not a figment of her imagination, that she's on the train, and that everybody on the train that she talks to is sort of lying or gaslighting her for whatever reason. And it turns out there's this giant, crazy conspiracy afoot. Um, she teams up with Gilbert, played by Michael Redgrave, who is a, a clarinetist that uh, she kind of has a meet cute, but it's like the rom-com, they hate each other, but they end up loving each other <laughs> yeah. uh, thing. Uh, sorry, I forgot to mention that Margaret Lockwood plays Iris. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, Mae Whitty plays Miss Freud. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a weird film. One of the strangest things I've ever seen, and I did not realize this, because I'm not fully up the on the man's filmography, but when the words directed by Alfred Hitchcock popped up on the screen. I was like, oh, this is like a like a crazy murder suspense movie. <laughs> and then I watched the first 15 minutes of it. I'm like, oh, this is a strange comedy. <laughs> and then a half hour into it, I was like, oh, this is a strange comedy mixed with crazy tension, but there's not like the, you know, the mm -hmm. score to like accentuate. You can see the moments where in a later Hitchcock film, there would have been a sting on the score. Like when you see Freud, because Mrs. Madame Freud had written her name sort of in condensation on the glass. And later that kind of comes back into importance and it's like, Ding! but no, it's just like, uh, the whole thing takes some crazy twists and turns but it never loses the suspense and it never loses its sense of humor about itself. I can't think of another movie like this that I've seen. And I wonder why have people been wasting their time remaking and adoring Murder on the Orient Express when the real money is with The Lady Vanishes? <laughs> yeah, this was a new one for me to watch in a blind spot. Or, or Early Hitchcock is a blind spot for me only because I'm such a psycho fan that that's, that's what I want. <laughs> You know, it's like I, I don't watch it. I need to watch any other Hitchcock. I'll watch yeah, you gotta that. watch Vertigo. Gotta watch. Vertigo. Well, I've watched Vertigo. Okay. okay. When we did our eight weeks of Hitchcock, that's part of the reason why I did that. I watched some other films, and I was just like, "This is amazing! Look, there's that filmmaker. There's that filmmaker. Look at how many people have borrowed from Hitchcock." <laughs> borrowed but, is being very generous. Borrowed is very generous. Well, what's interesting with Hitchcock though is, for as much as we revere him today his early stuff was not all well received this in fact i think was one of his first actual hits 
I was looking, uh, it all started with looking at the specs on that Criterion Blu-ray, because mm -hmm. I guess there's a special, like a feature on there about the pr mega producer David O. Selznick. Sure. Who, and I was, then I, that drove me to Wikipedia. And apparently Hitchcock's first three films were failures, mm -hmm. but Selznick saw something in this guy. He's like, I, I'm going to give him a chance, like another a chance to prove himself and this like kicked off his career this movie is a big success mm -hmm. and it's what's nuts to think about is that the year after this movie selznick produced another film uh gone with the wind yeah right <laughs> which, which, which i saw last week for the first time and which also features an impossibly talented and i'll say it hot lead actress mm -hmm. i mean and here's the thing like margaret lockwood I didn't. I looked up her age. She was twenty-one or twenty-two when she made this. Yes, but she's got that kind of nineteen thirties, nineteen forties lead actress quality, mm -hmm. where she doesn't look like she's twenty-two, but she doesn't look older. She's just gotten got this nebulous age to her. But I was like, she's twenty-two. There's no way that twenty-two-year-olds nowadays carry themselves <laughs> to the degree that, that she does in this movie. Yeah, the way she conducts, carries herself, conducts herself, acts. I mean, you know, watching this, I was like, yeah, when it first started out, I'm like, well, this is just quirky. And I'm just smiling and my wife is getting a kick out of my reaction. So I'm going, this is Hitchcock. I mean, this is this is like, you know, and you can see the inklings. You know, when they, I knew what I was in for, like right away, because it's 38. And they opened with a wonderful miniature town and train and there's even a cargo I, it pulled me in right there because i'm just like oh this is quaint <laughs> this is just a quaint opening they've got like three people standing in the snow down there and you're just like look like hoping that one of them will actually move <laughs> I, I looked at it for a moment i go did they blend it or something because i watched it and no they didn't move and then they get into town and like okay we're going to go into town and we're going to get and then you get this car driving down the road but it doesn't it's not quite smooth so it's kind of like it, it like gets stuck in a little bit it's like doo, 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 and i'm like that's just <laughs> Wait, I just love, I found it adorable. And then later on, you'd get more train miniatures as well uh, before you got uh, tr actual train footage. Yeah, I'll I'll say, honestly, that first 15 minutes or however long it is that they're at the hotel before everyone right. boards the train the next day, I was not charmed by that at all. Sure. And I think I need to watch this movie again. This is one of the other reasons I bought it because I want to watch it with my wife. I think it'll be a weirdly easy sell because she doesn't like watching horror movies anymore. Oh, sure. But I feel like I can say this is a Hitchcock murder mystery, sort of, or it's a, it's a mystery, mystery yeah. but it's one that A, has a happy ending, but <laughs> B, is just so kind of like delightful and strange throughout that it's not going to give you nightmares in any fashion. But I was like, I didn't understand it. I thought, okay my brain was working overtime. I was thinking, okay, maybe this was early Hitchcock and he tried comedy and he was terrible at it. So he decided to make suspense films because again, I got to watch it again. Cause I was mm -hmm. like, not quite in the right frame of mind. Cause I was so shocked. It's like watching, you know, Michael Bay trying to direct the golden girls or something. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Um, but yeah, on balance, when he introduces those those suspense elements and the whole like gaslighting and Mrs. Mm -hmm. Freud, Madame Freud, like this, 
it totally works. Oh yeah, no, I mean it. It starts off a little bumpy, but what's what I appreciate with the uh, the opening is one, yeah, it's weird seeing Hitchcock handle comedy, like actual, like like full on, like zany Marx Brothers type crazy hotel comedy, which is what this first starts off as, where you've got all this. You know, it was a great way. It was an interesting early way to introduce characters because, I mean, you get this formula that's not as zany, but we got it with the, you know, murder on the Orient Express and pretty much any murder mystery type thing. You know, you you get that introduction of all the characters who you're going to see throughout this film that end up playing either minor or major roles. You know, we're we're introduced to that. The British guys who keep wanting to see their cricket match. (laughs) You know, you've got... uh, as we mentioned, Miss you know Ms. Henderson, who who's going to get married, and she's got her two friends who have traveled Europe with her, and you know she's she's very well off. She's she's from money. You know, you get introduced to the to the clarinetist who's writing a book on folk dances, and it's taking him like four, four years, years to write. <laughs> like, well, it's a big book. Um, and also, like, here's a question. Maybe you know this. Um, yeah. Because your wife is a big fan of Murder on the Orient Express. Mm. Do you know when that when Agatha Christie wrote that novel? Uh, no, I didn't ask her, but I know it was an older novel. But um... I ask because there are two, actually three passengers on this train that reminded me exactly of the movie we talked about last week. There's like this old widow type character in the giant black dress with the head uh the kind of headpiece to it and then there's also the couple that are uh having an affair and they're both trying to figure out like ways to leave their mm-hmm. partners like Sean Connery and and uh, Vanessa Redgrave so i'm i'm wondering like i don't think agatha christie ripped this off but you know perhaps because i know this movie was also based on a book so they're like rival books i feel like there's a whole weird backstory to this i just don't know well murder of the Orient express was written in 1934 and made its debut in february of 1934 and the film was 38 so they very well could be we're not doing murder on the orient express but we're doing murder on the orient express but it's not murder she just (laughs) vanishes Hi. Uh. (laughs) well i think i think that is one of the reasons one of the many reasons I give this film the edge on that is that we don't have the world class. We don't have like the the Belgian Sherlock Holmes right. on this train. We've got you know one of the potential victims of this plot trying to figure it out along with someone that she relies on but has just met and doesn't quite trust. Right. Um, it's it's a great setup. And and you mentioned the hotel scene. One of the things is even if you if you don't quite care for Alfred Hitchcock's comedic directing, um, the camera work in it is definitely Hitchcock. Though they do things in here that you know you was not necessarily seen by a lot of people. You know, <clears throat> a lot of wonderful uh, trucking shots. Like there's this one shot in the lobby when everybody's got to stay at the hotel and there's only a limited amount, and the camera actually moves through the crowd you know panning across the crowd over to a phone but it's like you don't see a lot of that in earlier films you know but that's hitchcock for you doing different things with the camera and i think that was one of the things that kind of annoyed me was like i i recognized 
some of I recognized some of his signatures right. in that opening part. I'm like, why are you wasting this on this dumb comedy? <laughs> but I don't think that anymore. No. Like after having watched the whole thing. Once you watch the whole thing and see how the characters play out and you, you learn more about the characters, yeah. But initially it starts off kind of a Marx Brothers-ish. Like like one level like just below a Marx Brothers zany hotel <laughs> comedy is is what you got going on with all these characters. But then you get uh the wonderful Mrs. Freud, who is just, you know, she was, she was, uh, at this point, she was credited because she was Dame May Witty at this point uh, in in this film. She was, she was a Dame, you know, uh, Dame, which is a very prestigious designation uh, in England. And uh, you instantly just love her character. (laughs) She's great. And it's also, you know, before you have any inkling of how she plays into this whole thing, you figure, okay, she's going to be a victim, or mm-hmm. if she is part of whatever like nefarious plot is afoot, she's very good because yeah. you just be- you want to believe that she's just this sweet old lady who bears a strange resemblance to Lon Chaney Jr. Um, <laughs> almost like if Lon Chaney Jr. played Mrs. Doubtfire, it would be M- <laughs> Madame Freud. Hello, hello, yes. <laughs> But she's just an endearing character. Uh, you wouldn't expect, and, and we'll we'll get to it a little bit later. But you wouldn't suspect her who she is. You know, there's a bit of mystery of well, why would this woman disappear? And when uh, Henderson gets the brick on her head, it's it's fully intended for Mrs. Froy for whatever reason we don't know. But you could tell that it's actually intended for Froy, um, because. Uh, it's it's the old Hitchcock of showing the audience what's going to happen before the characters know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, on top of that, there's a guy earlier on in the film mm-hmm. that is, is he singing, I think? And then yeah, that's when the hands outside, come into frame. Yeah. Right. And the, the hands come in from off screen and, and strangle him. Mm-hmm. That, it was such a strange thing because there was no suspense to it. It looked like... I don't know if it's just because it was the flat like angle to it or whatever, but I was just puzzled. I'm like, is this supposed to be scary? Because it's not. <laughs> it's weird, but it's not scary. No, but there is a bit of humor because he gets choked. Mrs. Froy thinks he's just done singing for the day, and she actually tosses a coin down to the street for him. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, the killing of the singer, I'm not quite sure on, but I think it was just kind of to throw you off maybe a little bit and just that there's some kind of danger lurking around Mrs. Froy, uh, you know, setting that up. So um, adding the seeds of, of, you know, suspicion that Miss, you know, Henderson doesn't quite have, but giving the audience that little extra role of, well, what's going on? Why, why are these things happening to Mrs. Froy? (laughs) She's just such a wonderful enduring here. Would you like teas and crumpets? type of lady like literally like you know she's like someone's grandma for crying out loud and yeah and it's it's nice to see like the little details that iris picks up on that mm -hmm. helps to convince first gilbert and then other people that you know this person really has disappeared uh even though she's not believed at first like the there's the special brand of tea that that they share um, it was like, was it something like a million Mexicans love this tea? Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, the tea, the tea, and it says a million Mexicans. Uh, 
and and I love how that plays in later when 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 Gilbert Redman, uh, played by Michael Redgrave, go figure. They put Redman Redgrave, eh, you know. But uh, uh, <laughs> how later on he drops a hint that he actually believes her when he's like, you know, a million Mexicans. I don't see them around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was just it was such a nice, uh, you know way to clue us in the or to to help bring his character around to believing iris right this happens to be in the hallway when the chef the cook from the train comes to empty out like the slop and he, he just throws it out the window i always <laughs> wondered how they did that back then it was like yeah just throw it out into the countryside and then the the label from this special brand of tea flops onto the train window because of the wind and it sticks there because of the grease <laughs> it's like Oh, I believe she was telling the truth. Oh, I believe she's telling. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was uh, Redgrave's first feature film. I mean, he had a really. Yeah, this is his first feature starring role. He was in a minor role in a film previous to this, but this is Michael Redgrave's debut feature film. So, what else? What, do you know what else he was in? Because I I, I don't know that I'm familiar well, with his work. I thought he was amazing. No, he did a lot. He he did a lot of British. Go figure. A lot of British uh, movies and such. You know, we're talking the old uh, studio system, even in in Britain. Uh, but he would star in uh, actually a nineteen. Everybody remembers the 1984 movie and and the one made with uh uh what's his name uh oh, i forgot now but it's actually there was another feature version of 1984 in 1956 and he starred in that yeah really yeah i wow. i was surprised myself cuz i was looking up his uh i was looking up his filmography and like i said he did a lot of he did a lot of british uh tv shows and uh and movies uh, for them. He was in, you know, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, The Battle for Britain. Um, he, he's been in a lot of that, you know, circle. He didn't do a, a lot of like Hollywood produced stuff, but he did a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, he, he just like launched his career though, because this film was so popular that it really put him on the map and actually helped, uh, right. Uh, helped uh, Lockhart as well, because, uh, this film took uh, Lockwood, excuse me, uh, because this launched her career a bit. And then she took a role later on that ended up making her the iconic femme fatale because that's what she played then later on. But, um, yeah, this film did for a lot of people, not just Hitchcock. It it was a big hit. Um, well, I mean, the thing about um, Red Grave. And this, hey, this is the second week in a row we've talked about uh, a mystery on a train involving an actor with the last name Redgrave. What did, what have you done, Mark? <laughs> I, it's just a coincidence. In all honesty, I just I just look at these films and go, I want to talk about that one, and they end up having that kind of connection. So, uh, spooky. <laughs> it is it's very it is. spooky. It's scary. But no, what I liked about him is he reminded me of Clark Gable's character in Gone with the Wind. Oh, sure. You know, Mm -hmm. the, although you know Gilbert Redman is a is actual an actual good person, but <laughs> unlike unlike uh, you know Rhett Butler, oh, but he has Butler, that yeah. right. He's got that same kind of like roguish charm. Like mm -hmm. every line is some kind of like a, a deprecating one liner, um, <laughs> but he really does kind of man up and become the hero. And at the end of the movie, when you know it's the train gets to the destination. 
and they're about to part ways because Iris is like, because I had to totally forgotten by the end of this crazy mystery and adventure that Iris was going off to get married. married yeah. And when they're in that one compartment or whatever, he's like, well, I guess this is it. I, I hope you have a happy life or something. Or or he was like, so what's yeah. next? And she's like, oh, I got to go marry Christopher or whatever the hell his name was. Yeah. He looked genuinely hurt. <laughs> and I was like, I felt, I, I honestly, I almost said out loud, watching this on my laptop, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you do feel, you do feel bad, but luckily, you know, she's like, she doesn't want to be with the rich guy anyway. She, she chooses the vagabond uh, writer, which, you know, who knows? <laughs> Maybe he goes on to writing a very popular book. Uh, but yeah, I just, I like the chemistry between these two characters. I do like too the, the, the character of uh, Iris Henderson. Um, She's interesting because she's not, for lack of a better term, flighty or or dim-witted or anything of that nature oh. at all that you might picture for a you know a character like she she is actually a very uh, strong woman of the time. Uh, you know she she's getting married because, as she put it, she's done everything else, and so she feels like it's kind of her obligation to her family more than anything. You feel that she's going to get married. She's doing this kind of out of duty, you know. But she she still could stand on her own easily. Uh, they established that fairly quick. Um, and yeah, it, this ends up becoming a mashup of Gaslight and <laughs> and, uh, and Murder on the Orient Express. In all honesty, when she wakes up and starts doing the mystery, um, you know, the vagabond, he decides to help her to be the gentleman because you know he may be a recluse or whatnot, but he's still a gentleman, and he wants to legit. You feel like he legitimately wants to help her. He's not just helping her to like get in good with her. You feel like he genuinely wants to help a person like he, he's not a total bastard basically. Right. And, and also that, you know, it starts off as sort of, sort of self-interest, but then yeah. you get the feeling that he just wants to know what the hell's going on. Right. And then eventually as you get, as they both get deeper into it, then it becomes, Oh, this isn't just a fascination. This is now life and death for, both of us and then pretty soon it's life and death for all the people on the train who are not involved in the conspiracy uh and they end up in this i mean it's weird because this is 1938 yeah uh so you know this film was probably made in like 37 and i'm not sure what the context of the novel was but it's all very vague like mm -hmm. when if this movie had come out a few years later it would have been oh uh, Mrs. Freud is trying to get you know, this uh, these secret coded messages to Britain to stop the Nazis. But as it stands, like when uh, Gilbert finally gets it out of her, like what she's doing, she's like, oh, I've got to deliver this coded message to England to keep two foreign powers from, two European powers from blowing things up. I'm like... <laughs> That's very generic. <laughs> yeah. They 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 do keep it vague. I think it's on purpose because this being made in 38 things were sensitive and you know if this film got distributed across it's one of those time periods where people even back in those times were sensitive and they didn't want to start a war over a movie. <laughs> right, but it's almost like 
because you've got like the bad guys. There's some like English folks. There's some mm -hmm. French people. There's some people who wear conspicuously German style, you know, outfits. But you might as you could have just called it Hydra and be done with it, you know. <laughs> but they never really specify like which organizations are in this evil team. No, which they, is kind of charming itself. It, it is charming. I like that. That it is, but it isn't. You know, it it you know what they are referring to but they're being vague about it on purpose for like you said for when it was made um because it even takes place in a fictional country most of the train ride is in this town called mandrika which you know doesn't exist in europe at it at, at any time on any map but it's mandrika uh is where most of this takes place and yeah the the bad guys who are chasing mrs Freud, who spoiler folks spoilers uh you, you find out later why she's she's you know she works for the british government she's actually a spy which is beautiful in itself she's a governess who's worked with children in mandrika forever and it turns out she's actually an undercover spy this little older lady who you know once things get revealed she's a badass she's like <laughs> yeah and you know it's <laughs> At the end of the, or in sort of the climax, she makes a run for it through the woods. You know, the, the train yeah. has been stopped. There's all these vaguely European bad guys having a shootout into the train, which we'll talk about that more in a minute. But Miss, Mrs. Freud, she gets out, you know, takes her case and runs through the woods. But she gets, like, shot down. But it's kind of vague as to whether she was actually shot or just winged or if she knew Faked exactly it, yeah. when to take the fall. Um because when she shows up at the very end of the movie, you know, playing the piano with the tune that, you know, broke oh. the code or whatever, it was, it's such a, a warm, it's almost like the, the warm <laughs> feeling you get at the end of It's a Wonderful Life when, yeah. when fucking Clarence gets his wings. Because right before that, uh, Gilbert and Iris, they finally decide to get together and you're like, yay! And then Gilbert's like, I forgot the tune I'm supposed to delivered to the the authorities to stop world war whatever two at that yeah. point um <laughs> yes Miss Henderson both... kissed him so well he forgot the uh well it's just you know he's you know the he finally he got the girl that he's yeah. in love with and they're in love and that's great but oh shoot the world's gonna end and then you hear the <laughs> piano i'm like oh my god this is great yeah you hear the piano you're like oh did mrs Freud make it i mean this is a 1938 film and you're just sitting there going did mrs Freud? is that actually mrs Freud?" and oh my god it is yes dude it's <laughs> it's chappy showing up at the end of iron eagle <laughs> <laughs> it, it it is and like I said you and you still get all those signature things uh with the hitchcock in here i my wife was getting a kick out of it because Mrs. Froy, uh, the gimmick is when her and Iris go initially to get her tea in the, the uh, diner car, she's trying to tell Iris her name. And she's like, what? Because the whistle keeps blowing and it's really noisy and that. So she, that's where she writes her name, Froy, in the, the steam in the window. You know, like a kid when you draw your the face and you tell your kids, don't draw a face. And then, you know, it gets foggy again and the face shows up again. Um, like months later, you're like, see, this is why I didn't want you to do it because <laughs> finger. So Freud is there 
And we even here get the classic Alfred Hitchcock suspense building of the audience knows the bomb is underneath. This isn't a bomb, but the bomb's underneath the table if the characters don't know. In this case, it's Froy. Iris, again, played wonderfully, wonderfully by Lockwood. She's just selling this that you just feel for her, that nobody believes her, that Mrs. Froy is real. And so they sit by the table where Freud's name is literally written in the mist. And I'm sitting there, like I said, my wife's laughing. I'm going, right there. Just look, just look <laughs> at the window. Just It says Freud. Look at the window. <laughs> and they didn't have to do that. I mean, they could have, like you said, have it be revealed later on in that right. scene. But it is something that we're looking at hoping that they'll notice, wondering why don't you notice that? But they're so into their own drama and, and problems that they're, they're not aware of what's written on the window. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very effective. I, I also love the, you know, the theme of there being an actual uh, stage magician on board the train. <laughs> they're, you know, uh, Iris and Gilbert go looking for clues and they go into the, like the equipment car or whatever, and they find that this a mysterious Italian guy that, you know, they'd run into earlier was actually a, a world-renowned magician. They see the poster of him. They find, uh, you know, his disappearing cabinet. And eventually the magician finds them. And there's like this big fight. And it's just so great to see how they use these like magic props uh, on each other. And and the whole like knuckle biting when there's like a knife. Like Iris, it's, it's suspense and comedy perfectly combined. Gilbert and this magician guy are in a life and death struggle with a knife. Uh, Iris is she's kind of petite so she has to find a chair bring it uh, set it up right behind where the guys are struggling climb up on the chair and then bite the guy's knuckle i'm like what is this movie and i love that because you know you i think you know sometimes we for, we forget how much is choreographed in films you know when you watch fight scenes this felt like such a natural fight for most part the way this is not a clean like really well Choreograph. I mean, it's played off to feel fairly realistic brawl. I mean, these two guys are 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 defending themselves. They're not exactly the best fighters, but they're they're fighting the best. And like you said, yeah, she's trying to get it on it. <laughs> she's just she she is not made. She's not built for a, a brawl with these two bigger guys. But she's she's you know, and and yeah, they even work a little humor in there. And yet suspense because uh, he manages to escape when they think they have him uh, because and he this is, because he has a piece of evidence that actually proves she's not crazy. Um, right. And what they 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 shove his body into it's the, the glasses, her glasses. Right. right? Um, but they shove the magician's body when he's out cold into this trunk and they tie it with a rope. But it turns out the trunk has a false back. So he escapes. What I loved is that, have you ever seen the Hitchcock movie Rope? Yeah, yeah, that was one of our yeah. eight weeks of Hitchcock, yeah. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I was not... I was no, not no, you were, you, you, that, this was, it was before, it was, it was B.I. before Ian, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, what I, you know, it's weird because I was talking about how much I didn't appreciate, you know, Hitchcock trying to do comedy. Mm -hmm. I forgot how funny Rope is. Like, there are some great visual gags. It's more of a straightforward kind of suspense mm -hmm. drama but there is some some cheekiness to it and yeah when they're sitting on that that uh 
that chest with you know tied with a rope i'm like this i know this movie came out you know like a decade or more yeah. before rope it almost felt like a reverse callback <laughs> you know like like oh this is gonna be important later kids you just watch <laughs> he, he works it in later yeah <laughs> There's going to be a whole thing with a dead body and a trunk and a rope, and you're going to love it. Yeah, so, I mean, we've we've covered our, our main characters here, and, and it's it's wonderful. But what also makes this charming in this film are your side, the, the cast of characters you do run into. I mean, the parallels to Murder on the Orient Express are very prevalent here. Uh, you could tell what influence Agatha Christie had on writers after that book came out, you know, and after uh, you, you could see it in this, there is a heavy influence because it's based on a story. So it's not a whole book. I think it's just a story. But um, with our side characters, we get this doctor who shows up on the, the, the train, Dr. Egon Hartz, <laughs> not Spengler Hartz, um, <laughs> who is a brain surgeon. And he ends up, featuring quite prevalent in the story later on as spoilers uh you come to find out he's one of the main bad guys orchestrating this whole thing of of trying to get mrs Freud off the train as a patient of his covered up in bandages and that because of head surgery so that they could go kill her uh, once they get to uh london um and yeah it's He's a fun character, too, played by uh, Paul Lucas. German accent, but not German accent. Again, they're they're trying. They're trying really hard to not specify anybody, at, except, you know, British and English. But as far as bad guys, though, they keep it vague. What country it is, they keep it fictional. Uh <laughs> yeah, the one bit I got to call bullshit on, it's almost like yeah. the cheating magician, mm -hmm. is they do this whole, like, idea of the body swap. Like, uh, at one point, the people on the train say, oh, Iris, we, we did find that, you know, little old lady that you were talking about. And it's a, you know, this person was wearing everything that uh, Miss Freud was wearing, but it's mm -hmm. not her. Right. It's a slightly younger little old lady. And... Later, we come to find out the real Mrs. Froy, who was on the train, when they did the switch, she was now in the car with the doctor and a nun who was actually working with the doctor to carry out this nefarious plot. Uh, and the person under the bandages was supposed to be Miss Froy. Yet, if you look at any of the establishing scenes <laughs> with that body, yeah. like, no, that's, that's like that's like a skinny little guy. That's not the frumpy, yeah. you know, Mrs. Freud. Not even close. Like, yeah. it's only it only works when you do the close-up and they're, like, uncovering the badges. Like, oh, yep, there's her plump, adorable face. And <laughs> suddenly her body changed. Uh, well, what? You know, well, you know. <laughs> they should have just, like, bulked her up, like, with a bunch of blankets or something yeah, over the body. But, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a little bit like, oh, that, that was her under there. Okay, you know, that's fine. I love how they call out the nun who was uh, played by Catherine Lacey, who ends up having a very long career as well but th it's great how they call out the nun because uh iris notices the nun wearing heels <laughs> which is great because i don't think they the way that the the hitchcock sh establishes this mm -hmm. is they peek in on the car or in uh, you know, the compartment yeah. they see the body and bandages the nun in the corner and then the doctor and they just 
you know, Iris yeah. and Gilbert kind of look in and then they leave. They come back out and in the hallway, she's like, I don't think nuns wear high heels. When they peek back in, it's only then that we, we see, see that the nun was wearing it. It's not like, it's not like the Freud thing where it's like there in plain sight for us right. to see. It's a detail that we missed it because Gilbert missed it. And they have to go back and double check like, ah, that's, this is what she saw. <laughs> Great stuff. It's, it's, it's really the movie turns into being told you're almost being told by from Gilbert's perspective rather than Iris, where you start off, you're introduced to Iris and she meets Gilbert in that. When you get to the train stuff, you're with Gilbert. The audience is actually with Gilbert in this. In you want to help Iris. The audience wants to help Iris. You know she's being gaslit. There's all these. So you're with Gilbert. Like you don't know everything, but you know you're not Iris as as far as the confusion goes. You're with Gilbert wanting to help Iris because Iris is in trouble. Right, and also wondering up till almost the almost the very end of the movie what the significance of Miss Freud, Freud is. is. yeah, Because you got all these people coming after her and stuff. And again, this is one of the reasons I give this the advantage over something like uh, a Poirot story, or at least the context of Murder on the Orient Express, is you don't have, it's almost impossible to figure out how all the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. And there's no one standing up and saying, oh, it was because of this and this and this and this. <laughs> like it's just, the story gets more complex throughout but you keep getting dribbles of, of answers to these questions that you have. Mm. And it all kind of washes out in the end. But it was a very simple plot that becomes more convoluted, but it's not like there was a million different pieces you know, moving at the same time. I, at one point, probably because we talked about murder last week, I thought, oh, everybody on the train really is on the conspiracy. But then in the third act, you realize, no, they're not. And they're on a train that's being diverted into not really Nazi territory. <laughs> and so they'll have to team up into the wackiest shootout ever. Like, okay, the the two guys we mentioned earlier, they're trying to get to London for the cricket match or whatever. Charters and Cal Cal the uh called the cot. Yeah. Right. One of them, like when they're they're shooting, you know, out they've got a couple of guns among them and they're shooting out at these, you know, vaguely German soldiers in the woods. The one guy is on the floor and he just says, <coughs> nasty jam, this. I'm like, yeah, it is. It, this is a nasty jam. What the, like they're being proper, like to the very end. The like very the one end. guy, the one guy who's like uh, Harry from Night of the Living Dead, you know, yeah. the jerk lawyer yeah. guy. He's like, I'm getting off this train. Damn you all. And they're not going to shoot me. They, they'd, they'd have to arrest me and put me on trial at the very least. He gets off waving a white handkerchief, shot instantly. And yeah. even as he collapses onto the ground, he's like, <laughs> and he, just falls over. he falls over dead. Oh, it's it's beautiful this this the, you know how they bring these folks together, and it's interesting because up until that point with the conspiracy thing, they establish a lot of these characters have their own motivation for not helping her, but it's not the motivation that they're working with the crooked, you know, not Nazi doctor. <laughs> They have their own. The 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 lawyer and the woman who are having an affair, 
don't want to actually get involved with Iris's conspiracy because they don't want to be asking, answering questions of why they're there because they're both still married, trying to figure out how they're going to do a clean divorce from both their significant others. So their motivation for not helping and for even lying at some points going, no, I don't remember a young, uh, an old woman, you know, around is solely because they don't want to be involved same theme just slightly different motivation with our caldecott and charters their proper english they know if they get involved there's going to be delay in the train and they want to make their cricket match so they don't admit there was a mrs Freud. not necessarily because they're in on whatever conspiracy but they've got their own selfish reasons (laughs) and that's that's one of the things that i don't think i've seen this done before it's Mm -hmm. a non-conspiracy conspiracy fueled purely by self-interest right like i mean this story would have been over like an hour earlier (laughs) if everyone had just confessed like yeah we saw her where is she (laughs) we got to figure this out um but yeah and it's also one of those things where because the story gets so involved and so zany towards the end, much like I'd forgotten that Iris was engaged, um, or is it, what are these, these guys, Charters and Caldecott? Yeah. I'd forgotten all about the cricket match thing until they get off the train station. <laughs> They're so happy that they made it in time. And they see the guy with the billboard, like, <laughs> passing out the newspapers, like, game called an account of flooding. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, even even at the end, they work back around a bit bit of the humor with these two guys. Um... You know, and it's even funny when they they later find Mrs. Freud. They're like, "Oh, look, there's Mrs. Freud. Oh, I guess she did find her." You know, just they just play it off. Yeah, it's all just we're just gonna have a happy ending. Deal with it. Oh, it's you know, uh, but yeah, I loved those two two characters as well. But yeah, you get all these kind of what we would recognize later on for many years after this comes out. You're kind of tropish characters but this does not play out and they aren't exactly in the roles that you might expect going into this film when you first meet them you're like oh we're gonna meet all these characters they're all in on some kind of thing no they're just people that don't want to get involved right which i mean honestly i think you could remake this movie somehow today (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe even keep it a period piece because sure. I feel like unless they do, oh, there's no cell service through these mountains, like, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just talking to the the self-involvement and not wanting to get involved in other people's, you know, mm-hmm. not really get involved in other people's drama unless it's, like, on Twitter or Facebook. Um, yeah, this is, again, it has a very kind of contemporary uh, feel to it. It's Yeah, it's, I was totally floored by this movie. Yeah, it ages well. I mean, and I think that's what actually helps with them not specifying <laughs> Nazis, not specifying World War II and get involved. Even Caldecott and Charters elude to it, saying, you know, there's been a delay because of some kind of conflict going on, but they won't say what's going on in the rest of <laughs> Europe or whatnot. <laughs> that's that's causing problems they they skirt around things very well but i think it actually helps this film not necessarily date it yes it's black and white and the styles in that but as far as the story goes it still works today really well you know and it doesn't necessarily attach itself to a specific period in time it is its own <clears throat> its own bubble 
basically. Speaking of bubbles, did you see Hitchcock's cameo at the end of the movie? Oh no, I missed it. Did he have a he had a... Yeah, he did. Uh it's weird because this is like, you know, 20 years before Psycho. Yeah. So I'm I was always used to seeing Alfred Hitchcock as like the poorly old guy with like the kind of the white thinning hair. Yeah. Yeah. In this one, he's got like jet black hair. <laughs> and I swear to God, he's bigger than he was ever in his entire life. It's at the train station <clears throat> where everyone's kind of getting off and there's yeah. like a crowd scene. You see him walk into frame, like pick up a suitcase or something, and just like he does this weird, like almost as as he's out of the frame, he does this weird like shuffle with his shoulders. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no, see, no context I'll, at all. <laughs> I'll have to watch this again to, to check that out. <laughs> I rewound like that scene like four times. First of all, because I'm like, is that fucking Alfred Hitchcock? And then it was like, wow, he looks different. Like, did he do something with his shoulders? No, he didn't. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> why? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it, and that's why one of the reasons why I wanted to do this film was go back and you know, uh, uh, a friend of the spoiler room, Will Johnson, um, he is going through uh, Alfred Hitchcock back catalog as well of things, his mm. blind spots as well, because everybody knows him for, you know, the horror stuff, the suspense stuff. But he's got a huge filmography, actually. And you watch this and you see the inklings of what later on would be the signature Hitchcock stuff. But it's just a quirky, quaint, adorable film that you're just like, wait, Hitchcock directed this? And it's, I, I may have said this earlier, but <clears throat> I, well, I i kind of know why more movies like this haven't been made because I don't, I, I think it takes a specific sensibility that Hitchcock had to make mm -hmm. this perfect blend of comedy, suspense, and adventure. It's not too jokey. It's not too serious or violent or dark. It's not heavy-handed, but it's just yeah. Everything it's delightful is the only. I hate that word because a lot of people use it to describe things nowadays. Yeah. But this movie is delightful to watch. It is. It's 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 quirky and it's delightful. I mean, because there's even even the doctor guy there until the very end when he shows up in the not Nazi outfit with the not Nazi German cars and the not Nazi soldiers um, up until that point, even him, you know, all the characters are interesting, but they're none of them are ones like, Oh man, I just hate that guy. You know, there's no real characters that you just initially off the bat hate uh, <laughs> at all. You know, you might think they're a little stuffy like Caldecott and charters, uh, but at the same time, there's not a character in here where you're just like, God, I just hated that one character. You know, <laughs> they all have some charm to them. They do. And and Caldecott and Charters, especially because you you think they can't just be two schlubs who are trying to get to a freaking cricket you know, match, sports. Yeah. yeah, cricket match. There's That's got to be the cover They're part of something nefarious like no they're just two guys who really like their sports <laughs> you know <laughs> and they'll literally do anything to not be late for that match and with it being 38 they're ex-soldiers because they probably served in some form early on you know when they were younger because they're older gentlemen so they most likely served yeah. in world war one or near the tail end of some kind 
because when we get to the like you said the climax there is a shootout and uh charters is really accurate with his gunfire actually he takes out a couple guys um you know and and they have no no hesitation in in grabbing the gun and starting to shoot people <laughs> oh yeah because at one point he says um one of them he says they're yelling out into the woods yeah. where they've got you know they're kind of surrounded and he says look if you take one more any of you take one more step and i'm going to start shooting and so they start advancing it's like boom he boom. takes out the fourth guy on the left <laughs> <He takes laughs> like, out a guy. there's none of this like uh, uh, no. no and that's that opens up it's like the wild bunch it just kicks everything <laughs> off yeah and it's it's uh yeah i mean even you've got some tension but not too heavy the and that's what's weird. And it even sh that shows the skill of Hitchcock that not just the master of suspense, he's able to juggle this film to where it could easily get too heavy. But it never even even at the parts where it's revealed or the darkness or what they want to do to Mrs. Freud or whatnot. It never gets too heavy. I mean, it gets, you know, it never gets like, who, <laughs> you know, well, even more than that, like it has <clears throat> like a false climax because mm -hmm. I mean, I would watch this on, you know, HBO Max. Yeah. And uh, it gets, it's an hour and 42 minutes or About that, yeah. Or what, 36, I don't know. But I was like looking at the time counter. So I'm like, it feels like the story is just like winding down and like, okay, they've got like 15 minutes left in this. I also forgot that this was an older film, so all the end credits are in the beginning. Yeah, so you right? can't even do that. You can't <laughs> even do that math of like, oh, it's fifteen minutes left. That really means ten. But no, like once they get to the train station and they think they're safe because Mrs. Freud is going to get off the train and get to where she's going, uh, that's when they unhitch the train and they send it down an alternate path right into the heart of enemy territory for this big setup. That's when like the real action. This movie takes an entirely different turn, becomes something else that's like crazy exciting in a way that the first, you know, two thirds of the movie are great, but they weren't like the way things end up as totally unexpected. Just when you think you can sigh relief and like, oh, this is almost over, it kicks into like really high gear. It's so exciting. <laughs> it does. And, and you get this point to where the nun is now helping them where she was helping the doctor she's now helping them including hitting the switch track so that they could get the train away you know <laughs> and she gets yeah and she gets uh, she's climbing back onto the train she gets shot but she doesn't um, die she just gets right. shot in the leg i love how they establish that you're like oh you know when she gets shot she's like oh it's just my leg and i'm like well, she's kind of hardcore too. She's like, yeah, I just was shot my leg. <laughs> like, damn. Well, I mean, let's give some points to Gilbert because at one point, when he wants to uh, prove that it's Mrs. Freud under all those bandages, he climbs out the train window <laughs> and cleverly, I I've not seen this before. He uses the he lowers the smaller windows yeah. in order to create like handles for him to like make his way across the train car I'm like that's dangerous <laughs> and clever at the same time <laughs> and they even do this wonderful thing where they've got the stock footage of trains you know on a screen or whatnot obviously he's not on a real train but he's oh, hanging that's right and the other train is coming this way and he has to you know he almost falls off <laughs> but it's perfectly lined up yeah 
Because even though it's totally fake, it looks, you know, the illusion is such that it looks like he narrowly avoided getting hit by the train. Which, you know, when I see scenes like that, I'm thinking back to 1938 and I'm like, I could see audiences like really like one of those where the whole audience goes, oh, you know, <laughs> type of right. Deal. Because it's not in the, you know, well, it gets back to the whole like film versus high def, but I can imagine right. that you can't see all the seams necessarily mm -hmm. like you can see on Blu-ray. It's going to look more quote unquote realistic. Right. On a but, screen yeah. with, the, with the green in that. But it, I mean, it's an, actually a very uh, harrowing type of scene. You're just like, even now watching it, it's like, I know that's just a rear projection, but it's still actually kind of an intense scene. You don't want him to fall off, but you know, again, magic of hitchcock um just just to bring it around a bit uh i pardon my plug but i i happen to be a guest on the uh literary license podcast recently and the host of it is in britain uh, uh keith achago and i hope i pronounced that right anyway he mentioned because i i mentioned that we we're covering the lady vanishes this week and he goes Oh, yeah. He's like, that's a really popular film over here. He goes, we watch it every year at Christmas. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I had barely even heard of this film, but apparently it's a big deal. It's one of those classic like over here, you know, like uh, uh, the whole uh, it's a wonderful life. But apparently he <laughs> it's on TV every year around Christmas. The Lady Vanishes shows uh, on TV and that. You know, I. I kind of want to make that a tradition in my house because <laughs> I, I it just it, it feels like a movie you put on some hot cocoa and a big comforter and you just watch right. it with your family because yeah I could totally see that because again for the subject matter and everything going on it never gets too heavy it gets to the edge at a few points but it never gets that heavy it never gets that like oh you know it it's literally a for lack of a better term a quaint film it it is just just quirky fun interesting film that has a wonderful spirit to it that you might not equate with the director who's directing it and i'm going to say it again cuz i said it at the top of the show margaret lockwood was 22 when she made this movie and she, I still can't, I still can't she, get over it. I can't either because she's got such a screen presence in this through this entire film because it rests pretty much on her shoulders along with Redgrave, but especially her. She's got to sell this, and she does it so well. I mean, she she really is the linchpin for this film, and it's just it's like wow, she's she's a strong character who has. And I'm doing this because of in context of what we're maybe used to seeing some other female characters of the Thai Britain. She's got her wits about her. She's got, you know, she is not a a bubbly headed young woman. She is a woman of the world who has experienced a lot of things. And you get that feeling. You don't get the feeling like, you know, she's putting on an act. She's genuine strong person who's very much adamant about the fact she saw mrs Freud. you know and that's i know we're wrapping up here but mm -hmm. the more i watch older films mm -hmm. the more i'm wondering where the hell this cliche of the not empowered strong woman comes from because i'm seeing more examples of women who are quote-unquote ahead of their time 
than I am whatever this mythical, like, <laughs> oh, she's so helpless, she needs a man to rescue her example is. It feels more like a popular myth that was designed <laughs> to help no, bring it, about a solution than it does an actual, like, stereotype. It rears its head, I think, where it spawns from, well, especially from the 50s, but I think where it rears its head is because what we're watching because when we did when it came from the 50s too you had the various gambit of female characters from strong to kind of more what people expect you know say is the the more cliche not so strong female character in the 50s uh it is the 50s where it's changed but genre films they're still more prevalent than say your standard straight film and you know where where you have your strong female character um, and I think that's where that kind of comes from the popular uh, uh, mainstream like dramas in that the way the way female characters were written. Um, but the genre films, I think, have overall a history of having stronger female characters than because of this one. It's not even the you know, it's not the guy to the rescue. They they're kind of they're, they're co workers in this. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a team it's, effort. They need each other. Right, they need each other. It's not like he's like takes the reins and goes, "Oh no, Mrs. Freud is here or whatnot." You, you know, they you <clears throat> never feel like he takes command, but at the same, you know, you feel like they're on equal level. And I think it really does change around the fifties, which a lot of things change around in the fifties. Uh, you know, the more conservative movement, uh, a lot of things got pushed in the fifties, and I think where that that's maybe where kind of that comes from. Um, well, I, and I'll have to take your word for that because I've seen some movies from the 50s, you know, certainly not perhaps as many as I should. But even then, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of where this came from. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it very well might be that we just had this very weird decade of the 1950s because the stuff that came before it and the stuff that came after mm -hmm. it, it just seemed like there was a blip that people caught on to. I'm like, we need to see more empowered female characters. I'm like, look at maybe any decade except the 1950s <laughs> well, I mean, you'll have dozens yeah i mean you look at the lady vanishes we've got not only iris who's strong you know uh you've got mrs Froy, who is just badass grandma <laughs> I mean, badass governess you know um you've got the other female characters you've got the the nun who who ends up standing up to the doctor and ends up you know playing a part as well and she She's, you know, got bravery and, and, and strength to her. You've got the old uh, madam in there who reminds me a lot from the or Murder on the Orient Express, <laughs> you know. Right. And she's like in league with the, the pseudo Nazis, you know, in sort of like a command role. She goes, she, you can see her out in, you know, in the woods at the car. Yeah. The Baron, um, you've the even Baroness, got, yeah. Right. And you've even got, uh, quote unquote, Mrs. Todd Hunter, who's the 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 second half of the affair couple. At one point, when her husband is losing his mind, you know, he's like, I, "We got to get out of here. We can't stay here. This is stupid." And she's like, "If you go out there, they're going to shoot you." And he's like, "But no, they won't." It's but then like, at what, she says, "Stop, stop your gibberish, Eric. Nobody's listening to you." <laughs> <laughs> well, and she even's the one that uh, you know she decided that she would say that she does remember Mrs. Freud because she does. And it's only until he tries to make an argument going, yeah, this is going to ruin both our lives if we have to go into questioning that she changes her mind a bit, you know. 
reluctantly, but even she's a overall a stronger female character. It's 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 really interesting. There's a lot of equals. All the characters are equal on this film. I think that's what's also the charm is you watch this and you never feel like any one character is above the rest. They're all on kind of equal ground here, taking on the pseudo Nazi. <laughs> yeah. At, at the end, you know? So yeah, uh, this is, this is a, uh, I'm going to watch it again. I know at some point it is a wonder. This is a one. I'm glad I picked this film because this is a wonderful film. This is just a, a, a wonderful, fun watch really. Yeah. And you know, it even, I mean, I was not a fan of Murder Murder on the Orient Express, mm -hmm. but I'm glad we watched that movie and talked about it before we watched this movie. Sure. Because I feel like if I if we'd started off with this and then gone to murder, I would have just I would have had less patience for it even then. Because this is like the <laughs> pinnacle of this kind of story. I mean, at least for me, I'm so glad you recommended this. Because honestly, yeah, this is in the pantheon of favorite films for me. Something I just watched today. Yeah, it, it, me as well. It's become one of my favorite Hitchcock films, which again, Psycho is one of my all-time favorite films of all time and especially all-time favorite horror films. But this one, I'm like watching it because uh, with it being his earlier work, you can see him handling it with even lighter material. You can see those Hitchcockian nuances and, and styles that would that he would refine over the next years, you know, till when he gets good old Norman. And his mommy issues, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, folks, check out The Lady Vanishes. Uh, don't let the black and white fool you. It, it's, it, it moves for a film of this type as well. It, 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 keeps, it keeps its pace fairly well, its energy, even, you know, when you get into the quieter spots. Uh, and that's all part of that talent of not everybody, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera, producer and director. Um, and yeah, it's it's just a fun movie. It really is. Yeah, and you can see it. It's on HBO Max. It might even be on the Criterion it's on channel. Free I don't v. know. It's on Freevee. It's on Freevee. Oh, really? Yeah, I watched it on Freevee. So unfortunately, there were commercials in between. There were a couple of commercial breaks where it's like, God, that yeah. date. But, <laughs> but outside of the commercial breaks, it's on Freevee as well. So it's out there, you know. Yeah, and if you, if you watch it and you love it, uh, like I mentioned, at least right now, it's like half off on Amazon through uh, sure. Criterion. I might have yeah. to check that out because, yeah, it's 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 just got a great cast and it's fun. And you can see why this film launched a lot of careers because there's a lot of people in this who would go on later and you know they pretty much i was looking up even the smaller cast a lot of these folks went on to have extensive careers after this movie this movie became a big hit um and you know uh not just redgrave but uh catherine lacy and everybody uh basil rathford who plays charters he and a few other stars of this would end up going again with uh, Redgrave in a movie called Dead of Night, which I may have to cover this year because there are a lot of people in that film as well that I've not heard of. But um, it looked interesting with the cast they had. But I'm there so, for it. <laughs> whatever you whatever you put together, I will support it heartily. Wait till you you, you say that now. Wait till you see snakes on a train. But then. Uh, I had to throw one in there. Okay. End of the month, we're doing snakes on the train. 
I apologize ahead of time. I apologize to you and I apologize to our listeners, but I wanted to do this because it's, it's, it's a film. <laughs> it's a film that exists from the asylum. And it'll be interesting to see going from these films <clears throat> to that film. <laughs> I haven't seen snakes on a train, so I don't want to prejudge. I just want to ask anyone out there who's watching this, can you do a super cut or like an edit, a fan edit of Snakes on a Train inserting uh, Margaret Lockwood and Michael Redgrave <laughs> into that movie so that they're like fighting the snakes on the so train? fighting the snakes. We, yeah. I'm sure we could work some movie magic with that. So uh, there you have it, folks. Check it out. The Lady Vanishes, 1938 classic Hitchcock. And I can see why this launched him as well with kind of the tough parts that he had at the beginning of his career, you can just see this and, and see why it, it, it took off why it did. And yeah, it's going to become a regular viewing for me as well. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening to us talk about the lady vanishes. And now as always license to shield to my guest, Mr. Ian Simmons, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ian Simmons. I run Kicking the Seat, which you can find at kickseat.com and also on YouTube. If you look up Kicking the Seat, I'll be there. Uh, doing movie reviews and interviews and roundtables and all sorts of fun stuff. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. So there you have it, folks. The Lady Vanishes is uh, actually an e-ticket from both of us. So definitely a ride you want to take. Now, will that be the same with next week's movie, Snowpiercer, where we're kicking off our... <laughs> 10th anniversary special series the perfect 10 uh so that will be an interesting discussion i'm sure as well so stay tuned for that folks check out ian's stuff uh like i mentioned uh the literary license podcast uh, i was on as well as the horror countdown podcast uh, which is a newer podcast you should check out where i actually did a list i did a list of 10 uh, horror remakes and we had a discussion a wonderful uh, time there uh, and yeah check all that out and thank you for listening and I would just say a good night everyone good night or would that be good evening uh, <laughs> just stick with good night Mark Hey, all my friends out there looking for more Spoiler Room goodness? Then why don't you check out our Patreon page, patreon.com specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to exclusive Spoiler Room episodes and a whole lot more. You can also find us on Facebook groups at SMPRD and on to Twitter at SpecialMarkPro. Let your voice be heard and let us know what you would like to see in the Spoiler Room, as well as just how we're doing in general. We appreciate your support, and remember in the Spoiler Room, the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies.